Australia, but to a little island outside of Australia known as the New Hebrides. And the New Hebrides are a chain of islands to the east of Australia. He went to this island and found that there was a lot of individuals there who had no relationship with God whatsoever. They were heathenistic in their behavior. And John Patton set up a missionary work on the islands of the New Hebrides. When he arrived there, he found they were so cannibalistic and barbaric in their behavior that the threat to his life was so real that he had to take his wife and leave, go back, raise more money, regroup, get some individuals to go with him, and go back to the New Hebrides. I want you to see this quote on the screen from John's biography from 1864. When he arrived back in the New Hebrides, this is what he found. The same superstitions, the same cannibalistic Cruelties and depravities, the same barbaric mentality, the same lack of altruistic and humanitarian impulses were in evidence. So nothing had changed. He had been there for years previously. He had done a lot of work trying to give a biblical worldview, but he came back and found that the exact same issue was still present. One particular night, John is in his home, which was nothing more than a hut, a lean-to, if you will, on a beach very, very near the water. And he and his wife began hearing this chanting outside their home and then frantic dancing. And they looked out and they saw torches in the jungle. And these cannibals were dancing in the jungle to the degree that they were into a frenzy. And they began chanting what John understood were the chants of individuals who were about to carry out cannibalistic practices. There's no way John and his wife had any way to protect themselves. They were alone on this island. And so they got on their knees and they began praying. And realizing they had no way to protect themselves against the cannibals, they just poured out their heart to God. Not long after they hit their knees, the cannibals stopped. They ceased dancing. And the torches disappeared into the jungle and they backed away. One year to the day, the chief of the cannibal tribe gave his heart to Christ. John encountered that cannibal, that chief, and asked him what had happened. He didn't understand why things had changed. He thought for sure that he was going to die. So look with me on the screen. You'll see John's actual words to the cannibal chief. What happened that night about a year ago when your tribe surrounded Arlene to on the sand near the beach and then suddenly left? This was the chief's response. Well, because of all those men that you had with you, John's response was, there were no men. It was only my wife and myself. The chief said to him, we saw them. There were hundreds of them. They were in brilliant white surrounding your home. Big men standing with torches and with swords. And especially that one that was out front. They were encircling your home. Did God send a legion of angels to protect John? We'll come back to John's story. There is a category of God's creation called into existence before humans actually before this planet. We know that because God's word has said it. God tells us that angels were already present when he built this place. Look with me on the screen. Job 38, 
Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So you have angelic hosts shouting and cheering at creation, and they predate earth according to God, and they have emotion. We see that in Job 38. They're singing, and singing is a response to joy, and joy is an emotion. And we know that angels rejoice when a soul comes to Christ, according to what Scripture says. So emotion is a distinct trait of a personality. So we have individuals who have personalities, and that triggers many, many questions. Who are these? What are they? Why are they here? What role do they play in our lives? And what does God want me to know about them? And why does he want me to know about them? Because he recorded their activity 273 times in the Bible. And what exactly are they singing about here? According to Job 38, we understand that one of the times they're all gathered together. How many there are, we don't know, perhaps billions, but they're all gathered together and found in mass is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look with me on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And at that activity, the sons of God, the morning stars, as they're called in Scripture, they begin singing, and they begin shouting in the same way they do on the night that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest. Not just singing, shouting, according to what God said in Job 38. Well, back to the who, the what, and the why. Let, let's go with the who first. Scripture makes it very, very clear that the eternal realm is filled with these beings, and you're going to spend eternity with them. So you might as well get to know them, okay? You might as well understand what they're like. They're here before you. And they're not normally visible to us. We understand that. But just because we don't see them doesn't mean they aren't here and that they don't exist. They exist in a dimension that we cannot yet see. The Bible says this room is actually filled with angels. Why instinctively people begin looking up when I say things like that? I don't know. But we do. We should be looking at the people next to us thinking, is that true of that person? Because of what Scripture says, God could send angels to you unaware. I'm going to give you an example from 2 Kings. I'm actually going to give you several stories this morning so that you see it both in the Bible and present-day stories. But 2 Kings chapter 6 captures a very, very interesting angle on angels. Here's the background on it. There's an enemy king, and the enemy king wants to destroy Israel. But every time he makes an attempt at destroying Israel, he's always defeated, And we're told that the enemy king learns that Elisha the prophet is is the cause of this. And this enemy king is really ticked at Elisha. And here's the deal. 
Elisha is so dialed into the things of God's purposes, he knows when the enemy is making a decision, even when they make it in the secret of their bedrooms in order to move against Israel. But this lands Elisha in a lot of hot water, and the enemy king wants to take Elisha out. And the military advisors know that Elisha is behind this. And so they say to the king, how about if you allow us to send some special forces in? We'll spy out the land, we'll figure out where Elisha's at, and we'll take him out. So that's exactly what the special forces do. They go in, they find Elisha, and they radio back to headquarters. We know where he's at, we want to take him. But that's not what the enemy king decides to do. The enemy king decides to make a statement and he sends his entire military against Elisha. That's where you pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 12. It says this, Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, there's no secrets. So he said, this is the enemy king, go and see where he is that I might send and take him. And it was told him saying, behold, he's in Dothan, he, the enemy king, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So Elisha's got this reputation, and his reputation is that he's so dialed into the things of God that he's become a threat to this other enemy nation. And so the huge army moves in in order to kill this one man, and Elisha's servant rises up early. And he does the things that you do in the morning. He goes about his duties, and he's making coffee, and he looks up. And you can imagine his response when he looks out in the valley in front of him, and he sees that they're completely surrounded in the front, on the back, on the sides by the enemy army. And his immediate response is, where do we go? What do we do? We're cooked. And this is what happens with Elisha, verse 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Cool. That's a special ops army. They're in total stealth mode until God wants them to be seen. They're invisible until the purposes of God fit the need and he demonstrates their presence. And I've noticed something as I've studied angels in the Bible. I've noticed this pattern. The pattern is that they continue to be invisible, not aware to individuals around them, but always available because of God's greater purpose. In this case, God's greater purpose for Elisha. In other words, God's not done with Elisha. He's got a purpose with Elisha's life. And so he sends the angels in to rescue him. Billy Graham had a really interesting quote from 1975. He wrote a book on angels. You'll see this on the screen. He says, I am convinced that these heavenly beings exist and that they provide unseen aid on our behalf. I do not believe in angels because someone has told me about dramatic visitation from an angel, impressive as such rare testimonies may be. I do not believe in angels because UFOs are astonishing, astonishingly angel-like in some of their reported appearances. 
I do not believe in angels because experts are making the realm of the spirit world seem more and more plausible. I do not believe in angels because of the sudden worldwide emphasis on the reality of Satan and demons. I do not believe in angels because I have never even ever seen one, because I haven't. I believe in angels because the Bible says there are angels, and I believe the Bible to be the true word of God. Amen, Billy. Way to go, man. Absolutely agree with you. That's just like the song that the quartet just sang. We stand on the word of God, a biblical world view. But the single greatest testimony to the existence of angels is Jesus. If you can't believe him, who could you believe? So in Matthew 18, you find Jesus talking about angels. In Matthew 22, he talks about angels. In Matthew 24, in Matthew 26, all four of the Gospels, Jesus is talking about angels constantly. Next week, you're going to find that we're going to dive into the angel issue of angels a little bit more comprehensively because we're going to talk about Satan and the fallen angels. Uh, believe me and trust me on this. I did not plan for us to do Satanology on Halloween Sunday. I didn't plan it. It just turns out that way. You're going to find in your study guide it actually lands next week Sunday that we have to talk about the fallen angels in order to move forward through the creation story. We have to understand that. There's cherubim angels. There's seraphim angels. There's what's known as the malach or the messenger angels. To some degree, in some form, all of them are messenger angels. Scripture says this in Luke 1.19, the angel answering said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. You know that, that's from the Christmas story. That's what angels do, they're messengers. They, they not only protect, but they also bring information. So Gabriel's in God's presence until he gets the orders. Immediately he's dispatched and he brings the information. So let me give you a few details about angels. Let's just talk about when. When were they created? Well, we don't know exactly when, but before us, before this planet, because according to Job 38, they're there before the beginning of time. They're there when the earth was formed and when it was called into existence. They've already been in rebellion by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, and they begin bringing the temptation to Eve in the form of Satan. So we understand they've been here a very, very long time, <clears throat> Another detail, there, there's no pro procreation among the angels, meaning there's no mom and there's no dad angels. Every time angels appear in the Bible, they always appear in male form. Jesus spoke to this issue. He said that they're factually not given in marriage because they can't. There's no procreation among them, meaning all the angels that, were ever, ever, that will ever be are, are now. Jesus said this in Matthew 22, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. My wife does not like that verse, by the way. That there's not marriage in heaven. That will be like the angels, not in the sense that we will sprout wings. You will not become an angel when you die. Scripture does not indicate that. Scripture actually indicates that you will rule over the angels one day. That's what we understand about Scripture, but I'll get into that in just a minute. 
In the realm of the angels of God, there's no increase in number because there's no procreation. And they do not die, so there's no decrease in number. And they're created like us with intelligence and with emotion and with will. But here's how they are different than us. They're extremely powerful. Look with me on the screen. Psalm 103, the angels excel in strength. 2 Peter 2.11, angels are greater in power and might than men. 2 Kings 19, we're told that one angel took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. It says this, then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. That far surpasses anything that any human could ever possibly do. Ezekiel 28 says they're superior in their intelligence. Daniel chapter 10, as you're going to see in just a minute, they're superior in their scope, meaning they're uninhibited by geography. They're superior in their experience. They're really old. They've been living long before us, and they do not die, so they've seen everything about Earth's history. You've probably heard me say this before. They're bigger, stronger, smarter, and faster than what we are. So when you study the Bible, you'll find them in the third heaven where God dwells. You'll find them in the second heaven where the planets are at, the solar systems and the galaxies. And you'll find them in the first heaven, meaning here in our atmosphere where the birds fly and where we dwell and where we live and draw breath. They're in every single stratum of existence that we know before the throne of God. And many times they're here on earth and sometimes they're in transit in between like in Daniel chapter 10 which brings us to the issue of why. Why does God want me to know about them, and what is their role in our lives to this day? We understand that everything that's created was created by God. Colossians chapter 1, we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. I'll just refresh your mind on verse 16. It says this, For by Him, meaning God the Son, Jesus, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, and watch this, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What are the things that are created in the heavens? Paul writes the dominions, the authorities, the rulers, the powers. All those things are created by him and for him. That's speaking of the ranking of angels. We're talking about the categories of angels. God the Son creates the angels not only to bring glory to God through praise, but also to bring glory to God through service. And so he gives them positional authority in the army of God, what we call the host of heaven. So Colossians is actually referring to a ranking of the army of God. And the invisible army of God is super organized. It's ranked according to task, according to position, according to geography. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heavens of the heavens, with all their host. And if you keep on reading, you'll find it says, and you made the earth and everything that's in it. You created everything. But he referred to the host there in 9, verse 6. That's the word in Hebrew, sabah. Look with me on the screen at this. It's in your notes as well. It's talking about an army of servants, those who would assemble and fight and those who would muster, persons organized for war. Why? 
What do they do with their position? And what do they do with their position for your benefit? Well, the best way to illustrate this is Daniel chapter 10. And I'm going to very briefly just going to touch on what you see going on here in Daniel chapter 10. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, you find Daniel reading a book. It's a bestseller. It's called Jeremiah. And as he's reading Jeremiah, he finds something true of his nation and of his generation. Jeremiah writes that because they're in captivity, they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Well, Daniel does the calculations really quickly, and he comes to the conclusion, wait, we've been in captivity 70 years. It must be coming to an end. Uh, He's part of the captivity. He's been taken to Babylon with the rest of Israel, and they're being held in Babylon. But he's come to the conclusion that the time must be ending. And so he begins praying, he begins fasting, he begins confessing sin, and he's pleading with God to fulfill the promise. Look with me at Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Daniel's about to learn that his people are going to experience incredible trauma, and there's more suffering in the years ahead. But God's going to be faithful to his promise, and he's going to watch over them, ultimately fulfilling his promise to establish a great kingdom. And then God lays a really heavy burden on Daniel's heart. Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for an entire three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food. Nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three weeks were completed. So he's deeply distressed by the condition of his nation. And he's gone into this three weeks of mourning and fasting, meaning no shower, no ointment. You don't want to hang around Daniel because he's not taking care of himself personally during that time. There's no grooming going on. He's just so completely committed to God and to God's word that he doesn't even use fragrant oil on his body. His all-consuming desire is to connect with God and to gain understanding. And here comes the understanding, verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz, His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now it's early spring. And Daniel has received his answer from God. And verse 5 and 6 give the most detailed description of an angel any place you will find in the Bible. The angels at the tomb, we got a very limited description. When Mary and Martha showed up at the tomb when Jesus was resurrected, we see this in Luke 24.4. Suddenly two men in clothes, they gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. But here, Daniel spells out all the details. Dressed in linen, he's got a golden belt around him. His body is like see-through, but it's barrel, but it's chrysolite in its appearance. His eyes are like torches. Now that matches a comparison from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10, it talks about the appearance of an angel. It says this in verse 3, He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. 
Or in verse 1 of Daniel chapter, or Revelation chapter 10, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, we aren't told what the angel says when he appears to Daniel. We aren't told what the roar is, but his appearance and his speech is so overwhelming that it causes a visceral reaction. Verse 7. Now, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So his companions are feeling the terror, and they're in this place of awe because of this powerful presence, and they're overwhelmed with shock and horror, and so they run. And then comes verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. And I retained no strength, but I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. By the way, that's code for Daniel fainted. His first reaction was he was stunned. He stands staring at this vision in front of him. But then he faints, and I want you to remember, this is the same Daniel who was in the lion's den. This is the same Daniel who was in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He's no pushover, and he's not given to intimidation. But he's so emotionally overwhelmed that the color just drains from his face. His knees begin buckling, and they shake, and he collapses. And at the sound of the angel's words, Daniel can't take it any longer. But the angel sets him upright just going to breeze over this. And the angel says, Daniel, take a breath. I'm going to put you on your feet again. And I want you to hear this because there's something very big coming. And then Daniel is told what had happened three weeks earlier. I know if you're a human who believes in God and you've prayed, you've felt like there's been times when God has not heard your prayers. I know that that's true. I know that it's true in my life. We pray and we think sometimes the heavens, heavens are as brass. If you back up three weeks in time, you find Daniel praying. And I'm sure on day one, he wanted an answer. On day two, on day three, on day four, on day 15, on day 20, he wanted an answer. He'd given up showering. He'd given up eating. He'd given up everything so that God would respond to him. But the angel comes and tells him, something happened, Daniel, three weeks ago. At the very moment that you began to pray, when you first prayed for understanding, the Lord commissioned me as an angel to come to you. But according to what you're about to see, apparently the powers of evil have the ability to hinder, to restrain and keep back and fight against in a spiritual battle. So the angel says, God's response, Daniel, it was immediate. I was sent immediately, but the prince of Persia resisted me. Go with me to the next verse, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings, plural, the kings of Persia. Now I have come to you to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And you get a fascinating insight into the realm and the role of the angels. A believer engages in prayer. God dispatches the angel, 
and incredible forces are unleashed. You go back to chapter 8 and chapter 9, and you'll find that Gabriel is engaged in a battle with the kings of Persia. These are what the Bible calls demonic spirits, the fallen angels who have been assigned by Satan to specific realms. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks to this. New Testament passage, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Whatever the nature of the fight is that Gabriel's engaged in here, he's not able to destroy this demon prince. And he needs Michael, the archangel, to step in. Is this indicating that Satan has at least one fallen angel assigned to geopolitical regions? That there's demonic control over governments around the world? We know that Michael is the guardian angel of Israel. We see that in the Bible. Michael's not a cherubim and he's not a seraphim. He's an archangel. But he's powerful enough to, to break the interference of this demonic king of Persia. And that paves the way for Gabriel to bring the answer. Daniel's conversation reveals something to you. It reveals very specifically that there's an invisible war going on all around you. You can't see it. At times, God allows the, the presence of angels to be visible, but there's a war going on that's raging between the forces of evil and the forces of God. And just as God has a war armor, an arm, army of the host of heaven, Satan has an army of the host of demons, and they war against each other. And so Daniel now realizes he's been involved in spiritual war, and he didn't even know it. He didn't know what was going on in the background. But at this moment where you're reading this, he's fully conscious now. He hears the voice like the roar of a lion, and the angel begins speaking, and the angel says to him, Daniel, I'm still in combat mode. I've got to go back into the battle. Verse 20, then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces against, except Michael, your prince. Here's what's going on if you're not familiar with the Bible. Israel is about to be restored. They've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Satan and his forces are very well aware of what's going to happen if Israel is restored. It's going to lead to the arrival of the Messiah, and they want nothing to do with that. They will do everything they can to thwart God's plans. They know that the development will lead to the ultimate appearance of Jesus. So as soon as he's finished instructing Daniel, the angel has to go back into battle mode to assist Michael, who's fighting against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Now, you may look at this and think, Mark, that's like 4,000 years ago. That's so ancient. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. That's old, old Bible stuff, and it almost looks like it's fictitious, like myth, because when we can't make sense of mystery, we begin relegating it to the world of myth. That's what we do. For that reason, 
I brought some modern stories into this. Modern in the sense that it happened within the last hundred years. What I'm going to ask you to do is just listen to a description. Now I'm going to put it on the screen for you. I'm going to read to you an encounter that happened in World War I in 1918 in France. It might be easier for you to picture this if you just close your eyes and just listen from the words of a Prussian general who encountered what he saw on the battlefield as the Germans were advancing against the British army. This is called the White Calvary at Bethune. You can look it up yourself online, just hear this out. We were advancing at the head of our troops, all of whom were in excellent spirits, singing as they swung along, thinking that the British were now defeated, and all that remained was to go forward without opposition and capture Paris. By my side was Lieutenant Fritz, and he suddenly seized hold of my arm, saying, Look, Herr Capitan, there's a large body of mounted men approaching Bethune from the other side. They are clad in white and are mounted on white horses. Who can they be? I don't know, I replied. They may be British colonial mounted troops. We halted instinctively and stood watching those white uniform clad cavalry advancing quietly through the smoke, their figures clearly outlined in the shining sun. We saw the shells breaking into death-dealing fragments and bursting amidst their ranks with shattering crashes which shook the ground, and this was soon followed by intensive machine gun fire which raked them to and fro until it would seem impossible for anyone to survive. But the white cavalry came. Still they advanced quietly forward at a slow trot, and not a man nor a horse fell. Resistless as the incoming tide, they advanced, and in front of them rode their leader, a fine figure of a man. By his side was a great sword, not a cavalry sword, but similar to that, used by the crusaders. And his hand lay quietly, holding the reins of a great white charger as it bowled proudly forward. Then a terror seized me, and I found myself fleeing from that awe-inspiring body of white cavalry, frightened, terrified. All around me were masses of men, formerly an army, now a rabble, broken and afraid, all fleeing from them, but more especially from that wonderful leader on his great white charger. The German army is defeated. We have lost the war, and it is due to the white cavalry. What's that about? Thousands upon thousands of German soldiers were interviewed after that event, and they all told the exact same story. All the British soldiers that were in the city of Bethune in France, they didn't see it. It was behind them. But the Germans, as they were advancing on the city, they all saw it. And every one of them said that's exactly the way they ha that it happened. What is that about? Psalm 34, 7 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps round about them who fear him and delivers them. This is a biblical worldview, church. Angels watch us. Angels are real, and they're watching us. And when God sends them, he sends them to meet needs, and they respond instantly. Hebrews 1.14 says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here's the beautiful thing. During the life of a believer, angels take a very physical position in protecting. 
I bet if we did a survey around the room, everybody in the room would say, I remember that one time I almost died. And then something happened, something intervened, and you couldn't explain it. Some of you might say that about driving through the fog this morning on the way to church. You might say that that was really dangerous. We're told that as long as God has use for our presence here on this planet, he has ministering spirits sent out for the purpose of serving us. That we have the Holy Spirit caring for us spiritually, internally, that we have these angels tending to us externally, that's pretty exciting to know that God has your back that way. Let me amplify this a little bit further for you. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that God the Son became Jesus the man. And when he became Jesus the man, he was made a little bit lower than the angels, meaning that they occupy a higher state than humans do for now. According to 1 Corinthians, we will someday rule over the angels in eternity. Humans will be given that exalted position. The reason for that is you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. If you're in Jesus, you inherit what Jesus inherits. So you will sit on thrones and you will rule and reign according to what Scripture promises because you're a joint heir with Christ. But while Jesus was here on earth, even in his human condition, angels were deeply involved in the protection and the care of Jesus during his life on earth. Jesus said that if he wanted to, he could call 12 legions of angels and God would put the crucifixion to an end. 12 legions. That's a drop in the bucket. How many of them are there? I believe there's billions of them for the jobs that they have and what they've been assigned to. Billions of these magnificent, powerful, sweeping with incredible speed warriors of heaven that God sends out for the service of those who belong to him. If one angel could destroy 185,000 Assyrians, imagine what 12 angels, 12 legions would do to protect Jesus. Rome came knocking at his door. Jesus said, they could have rescued me, but that's not the goal. One of the most beautiful characteristics of God is his tenderness. You see it on display when angels encounter Jesus at the temptation of Christ. God sends angels in tenderness to minister to Jesus. I love Matthew chapter 4. It's the temptation of Jesus with Satan. And you see some things about God in the midst of that temptation. From the mouth of Satan, look with me on the screen at Matthew chapter 4, Satan is quoting the Bible. It says this, he said to him, this is Satan speaking, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's not wrong. Satan's not wrong. He's misusing scripture. But he's not wrong. Scripture says very clearly in Psalms that the angels are there to rescue. And Jesus, if you jump off the temple, these angels will intervene and they're going to bear you up because you've got a promise from God. Angels are going to take care of you. Well, Jesus endures the 40 days of temptation, as you know. But verse 11 comes along and we're told 
that the angels are sent to minister to him. So after 40 days of torturous testing, here come the angels. And what did they do? I expect they brought him food. He's gone 40 days without eating. I expect they brought him everything that he needed and they're comforting him, but they're there to minister to him, all for the specific purpose to help him accomplish the goal of the mission. And that's what God does with his angels. He sends them out to minister because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit knew exactly what's ahead of Jesus, what's in store for him. The mission is not yet accomplished. The knowledge I have of this information that you have, you've just been equipped with this information, should be giving you confidence because God sees you as significant in Jesus. He sees you so significant that he says he has angels assigned to you. You're still here. You're still drawing breath. God has seen fit to preserve your life and to protect you for a purpose. This knowledge that you have that you've been equipped should be giving you confidence. Did you know that angels love you? When the angel first shows up on the scene and talks to Daniel in chapter 10... He says, oh, Daniel, beloved of God. Why would the angel say that? Well, because the angel knows that God loves him, just like God loves you. And the angel couldn't say that unless God loved him, because the angel can only speak truth. And therefore, the angel loves what God loves, so the angel loves Daniel, and the angels love you because God loves you. They're not going out begrudgingly. They're going out because they love you. Their service is not unwilling. They want to protect you. There are times in your life when it's okay to say, Lord, it's time. I need one of your angels right now. I I need your angel to come and hold me up. I'm certain that there's times in my life when angels have strengthened and protected me in ways I do not even know. We are the heirs to salvation, and the angels have been sent to minister to us. So let me land this plane by going back to where we began, to take you full circle back around to when those natives ran back into the jungle when John Patton was in his house. When those natives ran back into the jungle, they had no idea what God had in store for their island and the New Hebrides islands around them. They didn't know what God knew and the reasons why God sent the angel to save the Patton family. This comes right from John's biography. I want you to see this. After enduring many years of deprivation, danger from natives, and disease, they continued with their work, and after many years of patient ministry, the entire island of Anawa professed Christianity. In 1899, John Patton saw a New Testament printed in the Anawa language, the establishment of missionaries on 25 of the 30 islands of the New Hebrides. You think God knew what he was up to the night? that he spared John's life when the cannibals looked and saw angels encircling the hut. God preserved his life because he had a plan, because he knew exactly what was in store for John. A salvation 
of all those islanders on all those islands through the cross of Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 1.1, we find this really incredible statement here made in light of the angels. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. How astounding is our God. How astounding. He sews all these things together for our good. Don't be afraid to entertain strangers. You might be entertaining angels unaware. Let me pray with you. God, I stand before a group of people who are skeptical. We can't explain the mystery of what you've promised in your word. There's a possibility that we even doubt that this to be true. We struggle, Father, even with the reality that you forgive us of our sins and you have destined us for eternity. How amazing and how astounding you are. I just want to declare on behalf of all of us that you've done these things for us, that you have equipped us, not just with the Holy Spirit, but with the protection of your messengers. God, I ask that this would translate to boldness on our behalf, that we would have the courage of a John Patton, that we would speak with authority of those who have encountered the living God, that we know your word to be true. We know that what we believe about you, Father, affects what we do next. So, God, I ask, I plead that what we know about you according to what you've declared in your word to be true, that it would translate to boldness on our behalf towards your kingdom, that we would speak to many people whom we know who are even more skeptical. Father, I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.